Hello there and welcome to the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast, a reshaping of the iconic RT Thomas Davis Lectures, which considered radio to be a university of the air, sharing the scholarship and creative thinking that shapes public decision-making and makes sense of our present selves. I'm Cleonany Anlun, its producer. The consultant editor of this series on Making Home is architectural historian Dr Ellen Rowley. In this podcast, she introduces a lecture on the future home, recorded with a contributing audience at Union Workhouse, Callan, County Kilkenny. This RTE series was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and academic partner, University College Dublin. The theme of these radio lectures is making home. And so it's fitting to find ourselves here in the workhouse at Callan, County Kilkenny. Workhouses being a physically significant place of home in the Irish historic landscape. And almost always, from their earliest histories in the 1830s, they were a dwelling place of last resort. Workhouses were home for those who had nowhere else to go. Built for 600 inmates, as the residents were known. This place housed over 700 people during its busiest and darkest years of the Great Irish Famine. Today, following its closure as a workhouse in the 1920s, becoming then a knitwear factory, Callan Workhouse is reformed. It is now known by its original name of Workhouse Union, and it is a dynamic home for artists, for collaborative and community-based research. And we're here to listen to a lecture on the house of the future, the smart home, entitled Bricks, Mortar and Data. Our lecturer is one of today's foremost thinkers, researchers and scholars in the field of wireless communications and cognitive radio. She's an engineer by education, and looks at something I think it's fair to say that most of us aren't familiar with, spectrum management. Her work in this field as an advocate in spectrum management practices has brought her onto Avcom Spectrum Advisory Board and onto other national and international organisations. She is the Dean of Research at Trinity College Dublin. Welcome, Professor Linda Doyle. Just as it seems jarring to discuss cutting-edge, smart domestic technology here in our 1840s stone building, where ventilation always gave trouble and sanitation was archaic, never sufficient in the form of outdoor privies and a single bath per ward. But the point is that you, Linda, as an educator and as a thinker and as a practitioner, are all about overcoming those things that are seen to be or are commonly understood as being jarring or mutually exclusive, are you not? In fact, I should point out that you hold the first ever professorship of engineering and the arts in any Irish university and quite possibly, from what I can tell, any university in the world. That's absolutely true, Ellen. And I think those two things for me go together very naturally and aren't in fact jarring. And hopefully during this lecture you'll see that that perspective allows you to look at things in different ways. This is an especially good location for that kind of jarring experience because we're sitting here in a place where nobody had anything private or nothing was made for them. And what you'll see is smart homes are all about adjusting to you personally. So I think we're yet again uh, in a jarring space. Let's hear about the smart home. Linda Doyle with her lecture, Bricks, Mortar and Data. In simple terms, a smart home is an automated home, a home in which all of the appliances, devices and structures even can automatically respond to the needs of the occupants. It can be argued that homemaking has always been about embracing technology. If you think of electricity, heating systems, dishwashers, washing machines, it's obvious that technology has played a role in making the home more functional, more comfortable more efficient and easier to run. In this lecture, I want to ask the question, 
whether the smart home is just the next step on that technological trajectory, or whether, in fact, the smart home is something more. To do this, we will look at the origins of the smart home briefly. We will understand its current capabilities and future potential. And we will get to the root of what, if anything, makes a smart home so special or so different. The concept of the smart home, like many concepts, featured in fiction before becoming a reality. One of my favourite examples is a 1950 short story by American writer Ray Bradbury called There Will Come Soft Rains. In the story, Bradbury imagined a future where homes were interactive and ran themselves. His story centres around a house that is capable of cooking, cleaning and taking care of almost every need that a family might have. And the following passage give a flavour of his wonderful prose. Out of warrens on the wall, tiny robot mice darted. The rooms were a crawl with small animals, all rubber and metal. They thudded against chairs, whirling their moustached runners, kneading the rug nap, sucking gently at hidden dust. Then, mysterious like invaders, they popped into their burrows. Their pink electric eyes faded. The house was clean. So, over the decades, various inventors and innovators developed different models and prototypes of smart homes. But funnily enough, the phrase smart house was only coined in 1984 by the American Association of House Builders. As we might see later, 1984 was kind of an appropriate year to coin the phrase. It is only now, however, that the kinds of technologies that really make smart homes part of the mainstream are coming of age. So in essence, the idea of the smart home was followed by the naming of the idea, which in turn was followed by the technology that makes the idea possible. So where are we in Ireland in terms of smart home technology? Some people will have experience of the smart home through smart heating or smart lighting systems. Or through different uh, appliances such as smart TVs, smart speakers, smart cookers, robot hoovers and more. Others will be familiar with objects like Amazon Echo or Google Home, interfaces that allow voice control of different devices in the house, or the many phone apps that allow you to control all of your smart devices. Many of you may have noticed that as you buy new appliances, they now automatically come with the ability to connect to the internet. My new washing machine, for instance, has the ability to connect to Wi-Fi, but I actually have to admit, uh, I still haven't found a use for that. So, all of these examples are disjointed glimpses of partially smart objects that might be found in a home today. Forecasts show that the average home will have over 500 smart objects in the near future. But this actually doesn't tell the full story. To get the full story, we need to look at how these smart objects might work together and get to grips with what constitutes a really smart home. A really smart home can understand and predict the needs of its occupants. A really smart home can automatically respond to those needs. To understand and predict the needs of its occupants, the smart home starts by getting to know everything it can about the people who live in its rooms. And it does this by gathering information on the behaviour and the patterns of the householders and then analysing that data. We call the devices that gather the data sensors. The sensors can have very many different forms. They can be cameras that see what happened in each room, microphones that hear. They can be movement sensors that detect motion, pressure sensors that detect when you're sitting on a seat, switches that know whether a door is open or closed, light detectors that know how bright it is, chemical sensors that detect air quality, and more. A really smart home has sensors embedded everywhere. These sensors are networked, and together they act like an omnipresent entity sucking in information of all kinds, having a godlike view. The data is gathered, often constantly, and the data is fed into algorithms which decide, using artificial intelligence, what actions should be taken to respond to the needs of the occupants. The actions are implemented by sending instructions to actuators that are built into every structure, 
every device and every appliance in the house. Actuators take action. Actuators allow appliances to be turned on and off automatically, doors to open or close, lights to be turned up or down, and much more. Actuators can set robots in motion to perform various tasks. So the small cleaning mice of the Ray Bradbury 1950 story are actually a reality. A really smart home has actuators everywhere. To put this in perspective, let's look at what you can do with all of this technology. Much of the original motivation for the smart home was driven by environmental concerns, scenarios with the environment at the heart. Smart homes can act as protector of the environment, becoming the wisest user of resources. The smart home is always the right temperature. Lights are never unnecessarily left on. Running of appliances are timed to reduce energy bills. The smart home can, dare I mention it, meter water usage and automatically adjust flow in response to supply levels. The smart home can monitor and potentially adjust its own carbon footprint. The smart home does not need to be an isolated entity acting on its own. It can interact with the wider world also for environmental purposes. For example, a home might have the capability to generate electricity through solar power and feed that electricity back into the grid. Here, the smart home can act as a broker, managing the relationship with the electricity suppliers. Smart homes can act as caretakers or janitors and look after themselves. A smart washing machine in a smart home can understand when it needs a service and phone the repair service without having to involve the owner. Perhaps a use for the Wi-Fi in my washing machine after all. The smart door of the smart home can let the repair service worker in without anyone being there. A smart contract using blockchain technology, for example, can be automatically initiated to pay for that service. A smart home can also act in some kind of healthcare role. Today, your phone or your Fitbit can track activity. A smart home has the ability to track much more through a rounded set of observations of those living in the house. The smart house can capture motion, analyse gait, monitor eating habits, count how many times you went to the bathroom. These observations can be detailed enough to detect changes in well-being, predict decline in health, uncover illness, and automatically phone an ambulance if you need it. So, are these real or imagined scenarios? Are they just ideas in the heads of researchers? The answer is that all of the technical building blocks exist today to give effect to all of the scenarios I just mentioned. All of the scenarios mentioned earlier are ones that are actively being developed and all have been realised in some form or other in some part of the world. There are challenges in making these services widely available and ensuring that all smart objects work seamlessly together. But setting these challenges aside for the moment, let us return to the question I posed at the beginning. Is the smart home just the next step in the technological development of the home or is it something more? My answer is that the smart home is most definitely something more, something much, much more. And there are two key reasons why this is the case. The first reason is that the smart home, as we have seen in the examples already mentioned, can act in different ways and therefore has a hugely expanded set of roles to play. The Swiss architect working from the 1920s, Le Corbusier, stated, though possibly misquoted, that a house is a machine for living in. Though Le Corbusier was not specifically talking about a smart home, the machine of the home can now act as environmental controller, electricity broker, janitor, health professional, among many other roles. The second reason the smart home is much more is because a smart home has a hugely expanded footprint. What do I mean by that? 
we all understand the notion of a physical footprint of a house. We have become familiar with other phrases or other kind of footprints like carbon footprints. A digital footprint is the mark made in the digital and online world. You all leave traces of yourself online. The smart home now has a digital footprint in addition to its physical one. It performs digitally as well as physically. This digital performance or digital footprint is not contained within the physical boundaries of the house. The home now feeds into a much wider and ever expanding network. Deeper into the electricity grid, cooperating with support services, interacting with healthcare systems, and on and on and on. The expanded roles and expanded footprints of the smart home garner many questions. We have to start with privacy. Questions around privacy are becoming some of the key questions of our era. And there is not a day that goes by without some issue relating to a breach of privacy hitting the headlines. Hence, the first question we might ask is what does it mean to be in the privacy of your own home when we are now dealing with bricks, mortar and data? In 1999, the Museum of Modern Art held an exhibition entitled The Unprivate House. The exhibition featured 26 different houses whose designs reflected the evolution of the private house as a result of architectural innovations and changing cultural conditions. This unprivate house exhibition looked at how the boundary between the calm of the house and the disorderly city beyond its walls had become dissolved, dissolved mostly under the influence of digital media. The unprivate house is a very compelling phrase and very, very useful for this discussion. The smart home might, in fact, be the epitome of the unprivate house. In a smart home, our lives are fully observed. More observations and more data allows the smart home to grow and learn and, in principle, make better decisions for the occupants. The data in the home is gathered on behalf of those who provide the services to the smart home. While some data stays within the four walls, some is the property of the service providers and travels into the wider networks in which the home participates. And now we get to the ethics of it all. The data is more than just data. It is a currency. It is a currency through which we pay for the services we get. The energy saving services, the washing machine fixing services, the health services. It is a currency that, like all currencies, changes hands as it travels over the now much expanded house footprint. The monetization of all of this kind of data has come to be known as surveillance capitalism. Some of you may recognize this term as that created by Shoshana Zabuff an American writer and scholar at the Harvard Business School. Zabuff came up with the term in 2014, but recent scandals such as those surrounding Facebook and Cambridge Analytica have made it ever more relevant. The term surveillance capital draws our attention to a number of different things. It emphasizes the fact that data about us is gathered in exchange for the services we get. It draws attention to the fact that data gathering happens on a massive scale. Here we are not talking about the observations in my home alone, but on all of our homes and all of our lives more generally. It draws attention to the mass systematic commercialization of all of our data for purposes of which we might not be aware. Zabuff talks about surveillance capitalism unilaterally claiming human experience as free raw material for translation into behavioural data and creation of, often without her explicit consent, new products. Some of these products can be empowering. Mass population observations can lead to deep understanding of well-being, breakthroughs in health and new kinds of support services. But these products can also be disempowering and the gathered data can be used to make value judgments and to manipulate. 
The aforementioned Cambridge Analytica scandal brings to light just how helpful our data can be in influencing the outcome of elections. Coming back to the smart home, the observation of our lives in our houses could in principle, for example, be used to determine the price we pay for health insurance. For example, a value can be put on an activity level and eating habits that could in turn determine a personal insurance rate. I, for one, certainly would not score well on that front. Worse still, all of these observations can be used to determine whether we get up early enough in the morning or deserve the dole. While data from the home is not currently used for these purposes, the potential does exist. And understanding data, its use as a currency, and the network nature of the smart home are essential aspects of understanding the changing nature of privacy. The second question we need to ask derives from the expanded role of the smart home. What might a smart home replace? Back in 1966, Jim Sutherland, an engineer with the Westinghouse Corporation, created a prototype machine known as the Electronic Computing Home Operator, or ECHO 4, as Jim Sutherland's attempt towards a smart home was called. Jim was a hobbyist and designed and built the ECHO 4 in his own time. The machine was handcrafted with surplus electronic parts and apparently, and I quote, it computerised many of the household chores formerly undertaken by Mrs Sutherland. Mrs Sutherland was heard to ask, will it replace me? The Echo 4 did not become a product and did not replace Mrs Sutherland, but Mrs Sutherland had quite a futuristic perspective. The expander roles of the smart home today, as we have learnt, means it can replace much. These replacement roles are nuanced. And to get a sense of what this means, we can look at ageing in place initiatives. Ageing in place is based on the concept that smart technology can be used in the house to allow an individual to remain independently living in their home for as long as possible. There are a variety of ageing in place projects in existence around the world, and I could talk about many of them. But I will pick one close to home uh, from Alone. Alone is an Irish charity that supports older people to age at home. The Be Connect initiative by Alone runs pilots that uses sensors in the home to monitor the health and well-being of the occupant, technologies to support connectivity, and that link the person alone in the home with the correct supports and help. The role the smart home has here is one that is empowering. It has the potential to replace the need for nursing homes, or rather, to prolong living in the home, thereby putting nursing homes off for longer. Given that we live in a world that has a growing and increasingly older population, technology for ageing in place may be both welcome and essential. The alone work has a powerful principle at its core, namely to make sure that those who are alone and isolated have real contact with real people. And the technology is used to this end. However, as to be expected, all of the technical solutions that exist do not have the same principles as alone. Many offerings can be about replacing human contact and touch. They can be a substitute for bothering to call into that older relative and can be a way for us to believe that if we throw enough technology at a situation, the problems will go away. So, in the ageing in place example, the role of the smart home might be to replace forgetting, or it might be to replace remembering. It can replace forgetting by linking a person otherwise alone in a home with a wider world for their benefit. It can replace remembering by using technology to let us off the hook for bothering to drop in. The final question we might ask in this talk is what kind of rethinking of property concepts might result from the smart home. On a superficial level, given the digital footprint of the smart home, we will need to rethink the term for curb appeal in the digital world. Onto a more serious matter, house prices, 
a national pastime, along with discussing the weather. House prices can take off in new directions. Smart home technology will change the value of a home. Not simply in a passive manner, in that a smart home is well equipped and well kitted out and therefore sells for a higher price, like a house with a great kitchen might. But I mean that the value shifts in new ways. There is an argument to be made that a smart home gets more valuable as it gets older, as it learns more and supposedly gets smarter. Those inheriting a house will in principle inherit the data as well as the physical structure. Those selling a house will need to consider both data and physical structures. It might be necessary to reboot the house before selling, thereby cleansing it of all its data. Or, of course, the owners might pack up their data and bring it with them to their new home. Perhaps these last few concerns are as of yet thought experiments and far from concrete, um, no pun intended, uh, but they do all signal a key trend in our world that increasingly challenges us to understand the objects in this world from both a physical and digital perspective. So, where are we? We are unsurprisingly in a complex world and faced with much choice. Once again, turning to Ray Bradbury's 1950 story, there will be soft rains. Bradbury's fancy house ultimately came to a sorry end. Devoid of humans, it continued as a machine until it self-imploded and burnt down. The end lines of the story read, Dawn showed faintly in the east. Among the ruins, one wall stood alone. Within the wall, a last voice said over and over, again and again, even as the sun rose to shine upon the heaped rubble and steam. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is dot, dot, dot. But is this really a sorry end? It might be a sorry end for the manufacturers of products, but perhaps it's not a sorry end for the householder. Perhaps a real sorry end for the resident is in fact a fully functioning, completely networked smart home, which monitors your every move and controls your life. A 1984 beginning and a big brother end. Or, on the other hand, perhaps the fully functioning smart home need not be a sorry end at all. It might bring us better environmental control, better well-being through healthcare in the home, and more independence for longer. I argue that the choices are ours to make. The only prerequisite for making the choices are technical literacy and the willingness to engage in an informed and nuanced fashion. Technical literacy does not call for everyone to have a degree in engineering or computer science, but it does call for us to take responsibility. It calls for us to engage with technical issues, to learn about the physical and digital boundaries around us, to understand ownership of data and more. It asks us to look at the invisible and what is hidden behind. It calls for us to demand the same of our politicians and decision makers. Armed with technical literacy and a willingness to engage, we will make smart choices. Not just choices about what I'll do with the Wi-Fi in my washing machine, but choices that ensure the home is the kind of home we want and choices that give us a say in how we want the world to be. Thank you. Wow, thank you, Linda. Probably most interesting is your very persuasive call on us as users to manage and to know our technology. I wanted as a historian to situate the smart home in the context of the house of the future, which is something has been a preoccupation of designers, certainly, and different forms of architects and engineers for about 100 years and probably reached a peak after the Second World War. When we're in a town like Callan in County Kilkenny, which has a rural base, we have to think of the programme of rural electrification and that massive, well, I suppose it was a revolution, certainly for in terms of domestic technology. Cheeky question, would you say rural electrification was more in terms of smart home 
to the 1950s, 1960s Irish householder than what we're going through today. I actually struggle with that question a bit. It came up naturally in my head when I was working on this. From, I suppose, a factual point of view, the rate of change of technology is exponentially greater than the change that happened when electricity first happened. So if anyone here gets to look at any image or graph, you'll see shooting up everything from, you know, the internet and all the kind of connectivity and the machine learning and artificial intelligence that's in the world today. So we are changing at a faster rate. But I do ask myself the question, if you wake up one morning and you're in darkness and the next day there's light, that personally, that being, I suppose, alive over that transition is something that you would notice, I think, in a much more stark way. Whereas the changes that we experience now, to a certain extent, we have gotten used to the fact change is happening all of the time. So I think she has yeah. a point. Rosie Lynch, you are co-director of Workhouse Union, where we are now. Yeah, well, it's really um, exciting um, for Linda to be here today at Workhouse Union speaking about ideas of future home. And I think especially ideas of privacy and shared and what that, does that mean in terms of home? And I've been involved with a lot of other people in Callan, Callan and far beyond. We've had architects from Berlin and London also working on this project with us called Nimble Spaces, a process to support adults with a disability to think about what is a home that I would like to live in? What are the supports that I need? And especially, what are those issues of privacy? And then where are the, the places that I want my relationships, my friendships, my shared life? And I think often when we are in a supported role, whether it's living alone as an elderly person or somebody with support needs, we often don't have the chance to ask those questions. So Nimble Spaces has been this amazing project over the last seven years where we've had the opportunity to really look at those questions quite deeply. Um, and the role of assistive technology was central to our question and it was something that we looked at. Um, and we've been really lucky to be able to work with Brian Dillon, who was one of the um, leaders in assistive technology in Ireland. I think the key thing that Rosie mentioned, which is really important, is that it sounds like to me that you guys have been designing this together. And that is actually a really important part of the design process, where things, whatever they are, are designed with the people who are going to be using them, and that those people are equipped with the vocabulary and the information to be able to make choices. Um, in, at the academic world, we would call that engaged research, uh, and that two-way co-creation is considered one of the best modes of, of, of doing work. And I think we constantly need to make sure we're saying what is behind that technology, who owns the data when it's collected. Okay, it might be helping me now, but what happens to it then? Patrick Lydon, you've been at the forefront of the Nimble Spaces project, which Rosie mentions. I suppose my particular role was in getting these houses coming out of engaged research to get some houses built. So what would be the implications of engaging some of these um, assistive technologies in bricks and mortar? A lot of it, we also engaged with the will and preference of the individual. Uh, and without understanding future markets and trends in data collection, well, how do you really do that uh, with people with intellectual impairments? But seeing that there was a revolution giving capacity to people with physical disabilities, could that be moved on into cognitive changes? And that brought us very much to the question of older age and how could people whose capacity was diminishing be supported to keep going longer? But I guess the, the question really was of enabling people to create their own sense of their own home. It worked out in the end that the furthest we could go was to build conduit to every place that you might have an appliance, every door, every window, every place where something might become interactive. Because you didn't really know, did the person want to this machine to open their own windows, or did they want to open their window themselves? I suppose we came to the ethical issue of would these technologies become a new form of dependency rather than a sense of um, selfhood at home, uh, and that the ultimate question was uh, interdependence of human relationships. 
you reminded me of a project that colleagues of mine were working on in Singapore, and it was about ageing in place as well, and it was about medical compliance. So sometimes it can be hard to figure out whether somebody took the medication they were supposed to take, and there's lots of technologies for monitoring that. I mean, there's some, you know, there's, there's pills you can swallow that sends a message to your mobile phone that tells you you've taken the pill. But in this case, they were just containers, uh, and, and you were able to automatically detect whether somebody had taken their pills out of them. And what happened in that project is the thing that people most cared about was what colour the container was and what shape it was. So I think it's a really interesting thing where the physical world and the digital world are coming together and you see what different things matter to different people. Brianna Hurley, uh, you're an artist um, with KCAT. Uh, it's an art centre and a college and also studio space. And you're an artist with a great interest in architecture who's just won an award to work with an architect, Nasa Harrigan. And I'd like to ask you, Brianna, what is a positive outcome of a smart home? When someone's in the wheelchair, it's very good that the door opens automatically. It's very handy to have uh, things done for you sometimes because when you're feeling a lazy day, it's nice to have like things done for you, like especially when it calls the ambulance for you. Mm -hmm. And I find that really impressive that it keeps an eye on your health and it keeps an eye on a lot of things. What is the creative opportunity of a smart home? Well, I had this idea of having a house. Not just the inside is beautiful, but the outside is beautiful. And if they could press a button, if they feel like stone, <laughs> stone should come up. Yeah. And if they feel like plaster, it can come up. Because for me, it's very important to have the inside of the house beautiful, of course, but also the outside of the house beautiful. Because it makes the person feel invited well, when you have a nice home yeah. to go to. Eitan Hulahan, you're an artist and curator based in the pretty famous, can I say, families of Callan, a home and a workplace today. When I started engaging first with Fennelys, um, I was very impressed with how the actual bricks and mortar and fabric of the house responded to more conceptual human needs, uh, such as public space, private space and outdoor space. We still are the same shape and size. We still are human beings and we still rely on each other. When I was uh, studying Fennelys, I did a lot of um, investigation into how our rural town centres can be reactivated for a contemporary use while pulling on, on the past as well for inspiration and, and moving into a future that is useful um, as well. Different creative ventures such as the Bridge Street Project, which uh, explored, I suppose, our interconnectivity, our past and our futures. Fennelys kind of manifested itself into the role that it is now, um, which is a cultural hub, a coffee house and a home, a multi uh, space. I'm just back from Banagher, actually, where Callan is part of a six town uh, pilot scheme for residential occupancy. And we met with uh, Fanula Moylet, who's head of the Department of Rural and Community Development. One of the things we were talking about was the input of technology within our town. So uh, Le Corbusier said the, the home is a, a machine for living. Well, the town is then the next step as well, I suppose. And um, I love that short story by uh, Ray Bradbury. And the, the last of it, uh, was, I suppose, not no one would mind, neither bird nor tree if mankind perished utterly by Sarah Teesside. So I suppose what I'm asking as well, within a rural context, we have the rural broadband and the controversy that that brings with uh, 5G technology. Adam Phillips kind of spoke about shelter and kindness and as well as concentrating on the shel shelter from a hostile environment, also remembering to preserve and invest in the environment of our homes within the shelter of that environment. How do you respond, I suppose, to 5G perhaps creating a perilous threat to our environment? You know, as an engineer and just speaking generally, when you want to have a smart home, and that means the devices in the home are networked, as I spoke about earlier, there are many, many different ways to network something. And when you think about what you want, it kind of doesn't really matter what, what network is in use behind the scenes. It matters that it can be networked and it matters that you have the ability to connect to the internet. It's really important for us that rural areas are all connected because we speak often about the urban-rural divide 
And if we were in a situation where homes were all smarter in one part of the country and not in the others, um, I think we would see that widening. I heard a very interesting phrase once called equal creativity. And it kind of relates to the idea that you should be able to be creative wherever you are. And oftentimes you need the connectivity, you need as much bandwidth that you can send up your ideas as receive down other ideas, no matter where you are. So I think that's really key. Going to your specific point about 5G, 5G is a wireless technology. This is my opinion as a person who has studied that. I think there are a lot of misinformation about 5G around. Misinformation about how great it is and misinformation about how bad it is. And this goes back to my original point that we all have to be more technically literate. Huge numbers of the decisions that we have to make are made for us, call for us to do that. And what you see happening often in political circles is a polarization of that discussion. I said at the end, we need a nuanced, informed discussion. There's pros and cons to every solution you use, and we need to be able to be equipped to make those decisions. Thank you. My name is Catherine Anne. I've just moved to Callan two weeks ago. Both of us, um, my husband and I myself, have moved from Cashel. So it's really exciting. I'm already feeling a lovely sense of home just listening to today and, and all the lovely energy in the Workhouse Union. I suppose propose that we need to be more aware, more literate, and I agree with that on one level in terms of our own agency. But I do think that the technology fir firms are a million miles ahead of us. And, you know, I want to be part of a WhatsApp group so I can talk to my family, but then it turns out they're listening to my conversation. So I'm not sure how much personally. I think the government needs to protect us a lot more. Like, yes, we need to be informed, but I think there are structures above and beyond us that need to mind us. And it won't be a question... Um, of opting in or out of smart homes. You know, we will want to be in a smart home, but I want to be protected and have privacy within that. And I think it's more than my own agency to do that. So I suppose just to kind of posit that to you. I couldn't agree with you more that there are really significant structures in this world at local government, at national government, internationally, that need to take action. We have to be able to ask them to take action. And I think if we're not equipped with the right way of asking, we won't. Uh, be able to and if we're not equipped with some knowledge we won't be able to notice whether they've taken the right kind of action or not so I but I absolutely agree with you a piece of work that I've become obsessed with recently is this work called the anatomy of an AI system and it looks at everything that goes into the Amazon Echo it looks at all the minerals all the materials all the conflict minerals all the immaterial labor all the free work we do and when you look at it you think this is huge how can I impact a change in that. We do need national and international action, but we need to be able to ask for that is kind of my bottom line with it. And we need to be able to understand when we're being hoodwinked. Hi, my name is Linda, and I've come from Dublin via Bunclody, where I collected my mum on the way. But uh, Linda, could you define what you mean by AI? I suppose AI is about giving a computer the capacity to learn for itself. So if you write a computer program normally, kind of in old fashioned ways, you have to think of every single situation that might emerge and you have to program that into the program. So if it, if it sees this, do this. If it sees that, do that. If it sees the other thing, do the other thing. You have to think of everything. So in an AI system, you're, you're equipping the computer with the ability to figure things out for itself and to learn as it goes along. And there's all sorts of fantastic mathematical algorithms and approaches that exist that underpin that and allow the computer to kind of develop learning capabilities in its own brain. The smartness comes in in when you take the data and you make meaning out of it. So, for example, I can make meaning out of the fact that a door opened and closed, that you went upstairs two or three times, that you went to the bathroom a number of times, um, that you went in and out the front door. And the meaning I might make, for example, is you're alive and well. And if I was kind of observing you in a home and I noticed none of this, you know, I might take meaning from it. You're secluded, you're not moving around the house, you might be depressed. So that's what the intelligence, the intelligence is in the making meaning out of the data that's gathered. And the way it works is that the more data you gather and the more the algorithms are trained, the kind of brains behind it, the better meaning they make. Now, sometimes, of course, you can infer things like we're human beings, right? And just say a friend of yours was staying in their bedroom all day. You could infer that like they're just tired and they want to sleep more or you can infer they're depressed and they don't want to come out. So you can get it right and you can get it wrong. And what you then need is some kind of way, some kind of ground truth to say, was this right or wrong? 
And that's what artificial intelligence algorithms do. They kind of say, okay, this is what I think this means. Then they check, is it right? And then they learn whether they're right or wrong, and then they try it again. So it's the making meaning out of the data that makes something smart. It's the artificial intelligence that sits behind things um, and allows things to be smart. My name is Kira Murphy. I'm an artist. I live in the Callan. I've lived here for about 10 years. And my question uh, for Linda is, I believe that a lot of the devices in a smart home are geared around commercial enterprise, making money off people with or without their consent. So I'm wondering if we could imagine a different economic system. Would these devices even exist or like from a technological point of view, is there a difference between human beings' needs and human beings' desires? You're asking a very, very big question without a doubt. Uh, and the bottom line is that there is a certain economic model around the monetization of data that has become dominant. That really is underpinning everything that we do. It's hard to, I suppose, get a grip on what would happen if that economic model didn't exist in the home or anywhere else. Because ultimately, we will be able to afford smart homes because we are giving away privacy. And if, for example, we were decide decided not to use that economic model, we probably wouldn't be able to afford the technology for a long time to come. And when I say we, I mean we more generally at the moment, because the two of those things are so ingrained and so stuck together, it's very, very hard to figure out what it would look like or what, how the technology might advance if that model wasn't underpinning it. Now, there are really, I mean, this might sound like a very boring answer. There are things like GDPR, the General Data Protection <laughs> Regulations, and those things are there to begin the process of helping us in this situation. And one of the things is data is not supposed to be used for any other purpose other than what they said the purpose was at the beginning. So it's fantastic because you can be, well, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, sure, but it's challenging because sometimes it's the surprising creative things that we use stuff for that we didn't think about that unlocks such amazing things. So we're living in this complex world that I mentioned where there's such a conundrum of things we have to deal with that I can't easily answer. But for me, it's great you're asking the question and sharing that with other people here and that they have an opportunity to start thinking about those things or probably have already and to contribute to the conversation. Martin Fahey, I live in Callan for the last 40 years. And what I want to ask you is... Can we say no to the smart home where people talk to each other, react to their nuances and their signals, their body signals, and they connect in the normal so that human beings will be able to understand each other when they uh, verbal and non-verbal communication, that they'll be able to communicate with each other and we won't turn into robots? I think we can't easily say no, to be honest. And the one object I will point to is your phone. And I, I've seen, for example, data from a particular company that in live and time, we're showing all of the people moving through a city, what nationality they were, where they were going to, where they were coming from, just by getting information from their phones and not any information that people said you could have for this purpose. So to a certain extent, if you're connected through any device, your TV even, you're already participating, you already have a digital footprint. And I think it's very hard to say an absolute no. But we certainly can say we don't want this under these circumstances and then begin to demand more of the kind of products that we have. Um, hello, my name is Dennis McNulty. I'm an artist and I've come here from Dublin today. I'm just sitting beside Kate Strain here from the Department of Ultimology. And I was just wondering about obsolescence. This idea, I remember when all the offices in Ireland were getting kitted out with Ethernet. 10, 15 years later, everything is wireless and nobody needs it anymore. So what are the implications around that maybe for the smart home? The Department of Ultimology is, a, is an art project. Can you explain what the Department of Ultimology is maybe? Ultimology is the study of things that are dead or dying. A discipline that was in a way invented and has a kind of residency in Trinity College in Dublin together with OMG, the Orthogonal Methods Group. So that's loads of words but just the main thing is to say that ultimology and the department that was set up to home it and to house it is the study of that which is dead or dying. I, I think whenever it comes to technology there's always obsolescence. I think the reason we don't have smart homes in the way I've described them in the talk, as widespread as they are, is, is kind of the other side of the coin of that question. 
So when you look at change, there's different paces of change associated with objects. So fashion changes quickly. Your mobile phone changes quickly. Structures you know, change more slowly. Culture changes more slowly still. And the thing about the smart home is that it cuts across all of those things. And that has implications for technology from the point of view that even though as a manufacturer you'd like potentially to have the opportunity to sell more stuff, you still have to deal with the issue of how often those things change in the home and come up with solutions that are accepted over a longer term. And there's still a lot of debate about, for example, the networks that are behind things or the particular protocols that would underpin things. So the home, in one sense, is a real wild environment with so many different paces of change going on that it is a real challenge to get right. And I think obsolescence will be an issue, but I think it's also being dealt with slightly up front and the cause of maybe why things aren't as widespread as they are. Thank you, Linda. With that final definition of the home as a wild environment, brilliant stuff. That brings us to the end of our second lecture event in the Davis Now lecture series Making Home here in Workhouse Union, Callan, County Kilkenny. Our thanks to Linda Doyle, who delivered her pretty wonderful lecture, Bricks, Mortar and Data. Next time, we will be in Glebe House near Letterkenny in County Donegal when Rosha Gowan will present her lecture on home and Irish contemporary theatre performance. Do join us then. You can listen back to this or any other programmes of the series on the RTE Davis Now Lectures website or as a podcast wherever you get yours. Thank you.